Lord, I'm grateful for your word, and I'm thankful for this season. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we head into this new year to focus on you as our able and good king. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I was thinking this week about the well-known serenity prayer. You probably all or most of you know it. Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. To me, it seems appropriate as we start into a a new year um, to think about that prayer a little bit, especially in light of New Year's resolutions and all the different self-help advice that seems to be floating around in publications and on the internet at this time. You know, I think about Sitting, sitting idly by when there's some change that I could actually affect. The only thing that maybe is worse than that for me is striving to fix something that is beyond my ability to fix it. It's, it's futile. And so I guess I, I read these lists of the top 10 things to set as a resolution or how, how this year is going to be better for you than next year and all that kind of stuff, and it makes me a little skeptical. It makes me pray that serenity prayer. Lord, help me to accept those things I just can't change. But don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to New Year's resolutions at all. Um, They can be inspiring. This is an inspiring time of year. There's something about getting a do-over that motivates us. And maybe your motivation in a certain area of your life has started to wane at the end of the last year. And so here you go. You get a, a start over. I mean, right? The saying is true that every great journey starts with its first step. So here we go. We're into a new year. Let's take a first step, and maybe this will be better than the last time. It's even a bit like repentance, which is a change of mind. I mean, there's similarity there with New Year's resolutions. I was, um, I can't say I've been searching. I'll call it a passive search. I've been in a passive search for a pair of 10-pound dumbbells. Every time I go to Walmart, I go over to the sporting goods section, and there's like a zillion two-and-a-half-pound weights and 140-pound weight and nothing in between. And I kind of go, oh, okay, I guess I didn't restock. But that's gone on for oh, 18 months now probably. So Friday night, I'm in Target, and they had a huge selection of weights, all kinds. They had three different varieties of the 10-pound weights, and one of them that I liked was 20% off. And I said to Heather, look at all these weights. And she goes, yeah, of course, it's New Year's. And immediately, my inner cynicism crept in. Oh, right. Yeah, everybody thinks they're going to fix their problem. I mean, ask me in March how I'm doing with that strength training, right? That's the inner cynicism that comes in. But one of the things that I think is really helpful to recognize about this season is that it is a universal desire that people have for improvement and change because things are not as they should be. We long for improvement in all kinds of different ways. And if we go about it with the self-help routine, try harder, you know, pull up your bootstraps, do better, if you're good at that kind of stuff, it'll lead to pride. And if you're not so good, it'll lead to despair, right? You can, you can manage things externals for a while, but what we're really longing for is deep foundational transformation. And so that leads me into the question of what is it that we're really looking for? We've been looking for more and better, but what ultimately are we looking for? And today our text is, is the story of the Magi from Matthew chapter 2. If, if you want to look in a pew Bible, it's page 807. And I like the Magi because they're not seeking to just fix some little aspect of their life. They are looking at grand themes. 
They didn't have the problem of light pollution in those days. When the sun went down, aside from some candle lights, they had dark skies, and so they were way more tuned to the heavenlies. And these magi were Persian astrologers, astronomers, um, philosophers, wise men, scholars, and they were looking into the heavens for anomalies that would indicate some major change on the earth. It was understood back then that when things happened in the heavenlies, it was reflected on the earth. A big comet or a bright star or something, there must be a a corresponding um, important thing happening on earth. And they were pursuing wisdom in their studies. They wanted, they, they read widely. They were aware of things going on in the world. They were looking at big themes and they caught wind of a new king, the king of the Jews being born. Now, people, if you read commentaries and stuff, they start going into um, all the records of when did Halley's Comet last come through or what might it have been, and we're looking for like a, kind of a scientific explanation, but this is a specific divine revelation of the birth of the Son of God, and this revelation is given to these, these Persian magi by God, because if I see a star or a comet over there, I'm not going to go, oh, yeah, that's over Rob's house, I can tell, right? But that's what happens when they get there. There's some kind of a light, some kind of a star, a glory, uh, an angel, whatever, that leads them to the specific house. God is stirring up in these magi worship to come. They catch wind of this new king of the Jews, and they set on a huge journey. I mean, it's far, and, and they go because Jesus is the king that we all need, The Magi were seeking things just as we are seeking things today. And when they realize this king of the Jews, the one that's long been foretold, has been born, they go on a pilgrimage. Now, unfortunately, our Christian and Christmas worship services truncate the story. We put Luke and his gospel narrative of the birth and Matthew's right next to each other, as we have to. In the Christian hymns, you know, the second verse will be right followed by the third verse. And in the pageant, the, the creche is set up, and the magi come and give the gifts, and there's Mary with the baby. We pull the whole thing together. But it didn't happen like that. It couldn't have. Even the text indicates that it didn't. There was a big time lapse from when Jesus was born to when the magi appear. And they're Persian, maybe from Babylon, which is 800 miles from Jerusalem. So I want to kind of give us a context of what likely happened. 800 miles in a caravan walking, 20 miles a day maybe, you're looking at 40 days minimum. And from the time they ascertain, uh, that Herod ascertains, it's probably up to two years from when the star appeared indicating the birth of Jesus. Two years later, they show up with their gifts. And even the text doesn't say baby. It says when, when they came to the house, they found the child. It's a different Greek word. This is like a toddler now. Jesus, and he's in a house. He's not in the stable. And frankly, it's probably not a stable. It's probably more of a cave where the birth happened. Because Bethlehem, um, I know this firsthand because you all sent me there, and my family back in 2018, is very hilly, and the houses are cut into the sides of the hill, and many of them have a lower level that's like a basement. And when it's really cold, they would actually bring animals in there to protect their, their flocks. And so it could function like a stable, but it's a cave. And if you go to this day to the Church of the Nativity, Christianity has, of course, built big churches over important sites, 
You go into the church, and then where the altar is, there's actually a grotto, a cave under it. Like, there are step, steps that go down, goes under, and there's, well, they have a star that's, like, inlaid into the marble and a hole in the middle of it. So you can, like, put your hand into the bottom of the cave, and then you come up on the other side of the steps, and the altar's on top of it. So Jesus was most likely born into a situation like that, and then a two-year-old boy with his mother are in the house. All this is going on um, when these, these magi show up. Matthew's the only gospel writer that includes this account. Luke doesn't, Mark doesn't, John doesn't. And I think the reason Matthew includes it is because one of his major themes, or maybe even the major theme of his gospel, is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the ultimate king of both Jew and Gentile alike. The kingship of Jesus is very central. And kings from afar come to worship him, or we call them kings, but these magi come from afar to worship the king of kings. The Apostle Paul in that Ephesians passage tells us that this is the mystery of Christ, the mystery of all ages that's been revealed to Paul and the prophets and the apostles, that Christ has come for all people, that he is creating a new people in him that is Jew and Gentile. There's a new kind of people with Christ as their head. That is the mystery. In fact, Isaiah, in that passage from Isaiah 60, talks of foreigners, kings, and leaders coming and bowing down before this king, this one that's been long awaited. So um, they found the house, and in verse 10 it says, uh, I mean, I just, I love the wording. It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, back to New Year's resolutions and our efforts to improve things, we don't rejoice exceedingly with great joy. We strive with margins of success, sometimes leading to pride, sometimes failing and feeling despair. But one of the things we're really longing for is that kind of joy. And they have it. As soon as they find the house, they have that kind of a joy. Because Jesus is the king that we all need, and they have found this. They found the savior of the world. And the serenity prayer, asking God to give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, is helped along by the knowledge that he can change those things, that this Savior, this great King who's been born, is actually able to change the things that I can't. And so these, um, these magi show up full of joy and worship and present gifts. Now, I would like to think they also had specific insight into the significance of those gifts, but more than likely they brought things that were indigenous to their region, so frankincense, myrrh, gold are localized. They can, they can be acquired in Persia, and they are very costly, so they're appropriate gifts for a king, and they travel well because they're small, compact, and very valuable in small packages. But they have much greater significance even than their financial value. The symbols of what they point to, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but I'm going to look at them in a reverse order because chronologically that this makes sense. So myrrh. Myrrh is a, it's a type of spice. And reading a little bit about it from the internet, I learned that it is a resinous substance that has a somewhat woody but also medicinal smell. And it can range from very bitter to moderately sweet in its smell. But it's primarily used for embalming. It's, it's to cover the stench of decaying flesh. And when 
Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea go to Pilate and take Jesus' body off the cross, it says they came with 75 pounds of this stuff and other spices to embalm Jesus and put his body in the tomb. So here, here come these, these magi with gifts for a baby, and here's the embalming ointment, Mary. I think it was more like, here is a precious spice from our region in Persia, but we on this side of the cross realize our Lord was born to die. It was a prophetic gift. It was pointing to the thing to happen that would come. The Apostle Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. He summarizes the entire apostolic preaching in that. The cross is the central thing. It's not we preach Christ and him incarnated. We preach Christ in the birth narrative. No, we preach Christ and him crucified. That is even more significant than the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. The cross is so central. I know many of you are familiar with the work of Holman Hunt, the artist that painted the light of Christ with him knocking on a door. He also has one called the shadow of death that sometimes will pop up around this time of year. And and you can Google it, um, it, but if you put in Holman Hunt, shadow of death, you see Jesus, now an adult, working in a carpentry shop with all kinds of wood scraps and stuff on the floor, and he is... um, He's, he's stretching, it looks like, and praying after being bent over on the workbench, and he's kind of like, like, he's got his arms out, like he's like praying, and Mary, his mother, is next to him, and she's opening a chest, and you see the three gifts of the Magi in it. Now, more than likely, they spent all of that in their flight to Egypt, and it was long gone, but in the painting, he's connecting the birth of Jesus and these gifts with something else. On the back wall of the carpentry shop, there's a wood bar that has all these iron tools hanging on it. And as Jesus is praying like this, it casts a shadow on the wall behind him, and Mary's down, like, looking in this treasure chest, but she's looking back on the wall. You can't see her face, but she's likely startled, because it's a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross with iron nails where his hands are, and it's called the shadow of death. It's very telling. Our Lord was born so that he could die for us. That is why he came. Thinking about great themes, right? He has come to save us, and the cross is our salvation. Here is a gift of myrrh for the king, the one who was born to die. The other gift, the second gift, is frankincense, which is a lot sweeter in its aroma, and it was prescribed in the law of Moses for the priests to use with the memorial offerings and the grain offerings. It was explicitly that spice was called for. So the frankincense is symbolic of priestly sacrifice. And it points to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. He died on the cross and then rose and has ascended to the the Father's right hand, where even at this very moment, he is interceding on our behalf. He is applying, if you will, the effects of his death and resurrection to us and is, is, um, is interceding and is our, is our great helper. He's the one who's helping us, and he is um, our great high priest. Consider what the, the writer to Hebrews says. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I mean, that was a problem, right? The priests would serve so long, and then they got old, and they died, which happens to all of us. So they had lots of priests in rotation. They kept bringing up more priests. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is resurrected and will never die again. 
So he is our great high priest who is an eternal high priest and will continue on forever in that role. Consequently, consequently, the writer says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This gift of frankincense was indicative of the fact that Jesus is making priestly intercession for you and I at the Father's right hand, even at this very moment. Again, thinking about the serenity prayer, Lord, help me accept the things I cannot change and give me the courage to change those that I can. He's interceding for us, which gives me great courage and a willingness to move forward because I know who he is. And then the third gift, the gift of gold. It is a gift worthy of a king, of great value. And Matthew is bookending his gospel with the theme of Jesus as a king. And at the very beginning, we've got Jesus being born, the king of the Jews, and these magi coming to worship him. And there's two very different responses to this announcement of his birth. We've got King Herod who decides to murder and is threatened by Jesus. And we've got magi who are willing to go on an 800-mile journey with expensive gifts and spend months on the road to simply see him and bring gifts and worship him. Two very different reactions to this one who's been born a king. And at the other bookend of Matthew's gospel, we've got Jesus hanging on a cross, being mocked by soldiers and religious leaders and even other criminals. And Pilate, despite the whole political situation, has written over him, the king of the Jews. And the religious leaders objected and said, no, no, right, this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate doesn't change it. No, what I've written, I've written. Leave it up there. And We've got the actual king. And by, by the way, king of the Jews, of means king who comes as a Jew and comes through them, but he's the king for all people. Here's the king for all people on a cross for us. And Matthew is bookending the significance of this king and our longing for him to come and bring justice and peace in our world and bring it perfectly. Consider Psalm 72, 17 that Charlie read for us in worship as we were singing, may his name endure forever and all nations call him blessed. We long for a king that can heal the nations. We long for a king that can set everything right. This is, this is why we're all seeking things because we're not resolved with where our lives and where the world is. We need more. We want more. And Lord, give me serenity to accept the things I cannot change because you, our great king, can change them and are going to. It gives me patience. It gives us a willingness to press on knowing that he is the one who's able to do this and he's going to, he's promised to. What we can't change, he can. Now, as an application here, as we head into 2022, this new year, I want to encourage you to find joy like the Magi did. They did not get to see the world put at rights in their day, but they got to see the hope of the one who can do it and will do it. And they were caught up with great joy. You know, New, new Year's le- resolutions can lead to some success, as I said, but more than likely frustration. Um, it's work. It's not joyful. It's work. But we need joy in the midst of things. And that is what is on offer here. Jesus wants his joy to be in us. He said that in John's gospel. And the Magi worship him, and we need to do so as well. So I want to encourage you to pursue resolutions for 2022, but I want you to do it in a joyful, worshiping spirit with the Lord. 
You know, because he is alive and is ruling the universe from his Father's right hand, he is present to us. He said, I'm with you to the end of the age. So don't just go online and say, oh, I guess I need to do a resolution. Let's see 50 ideas for New Year's resolutions. And, you know, you can look at the list and I'm going to, you know, stop eating sugar and I'm going to lose 10 pounds and I'm going to quit, you know, smoking, drinking, fill, fill in whatever it is. Rather than just pick one, go to him and say, Lord, what would you like to work on in my life this year? Let's do this together because I need your intercessions for me. I need your help. I need your presence. God, what would you have me do this year? Let's do this together. He is the king that we all need. And in the story of the Magi, we see him coming for all people and being worshiped and giving joy. So let's head into 2022 that way, expecting joy, asking him to help us, and full of worship. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for do-overs. I thank you for a new year, another year. I thank you for your patience, Lord, that you want everyone to come to you. Lord, help us. I pray that you would fill us afresh this morning as we come to your table. Nourish us, Lord. Fill us afresh with your spirit. As we were singing, we need a fresh wind of your spirit for this new year. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.